Mark 5, verses 21 through 43. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came upon him in the crowd and touched his garments. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I shall be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this. And he told them to give her something to eat. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so I'm actually, you can be seated. I'm actually really glad that this is the week that we stopped having the song in between so that uh, nobody leaves uh, between reading that and me having to say something about it. Um, I, I actually uh, reduced what I wanted to read because I wanted it to be clear. The, the, I don't know how that happened in, in uh, the printout for Manny there, but what he started to read second was actually before uh, the main part. Um, so this lengthy chapter in Leviticus is all about the uncleanness for both men and women when they have various kinds of discharges. Um, normal bodily functions. Uh, the way that God designed bodies to work. Um, so I wanted to be clear that this is not a matter of sin. Um, there are, this is ritual uncleanness. This would, uh, for both men and women in these situations, it, it wouldn't mean that you were in sin. It would mean that you couldn't participate in the public worship of the people of God. It would, basically, it would be like you weren't allowed to come to church. Uh, you weren't allowed to encounter a priest. Is that not on? Darn it. You wouldn't have been allowed to encounter a priest. You wouldn't have been allowed to go to the synagogue. You wouldn't have been allowed to go to the tabernacle. You wouldn't be allowed to offer sacrifices. Uh, it would be an inconvenience in most cases. 
Um, but in the case of this woman, for 12 years uh, of this uh, being constantly ritually impure, um, you can get a, a sense of the limitation that would put on her life, especially uh, when we look at how the culture had sort of amplified these rules. And we'll talk about that in a minute, uh, more in a minute. This story in, uh, in Mark, the way that he lays this out, the way that this really seems to have actually happened, this episode with this ruler of the synagogue named Jairus and coming and requesting help and then being interrupted on the way um, and then carrying on. Uh, it's very intricate. Uh, it's very uh, carefully constructed. And there's a lot uh, for us to learn in it. And remember that in Mark, um, especially, maybe even more especially than the other Gospels, the emphasis is always on what is the kingdom of God, right? The first thing that we see about Jesus is that he comes announcing uh, that the kingdom of God is at hand and calling people to repent and believe that gospel. And remember that the gospel in that context means the announcement of this victory. The kingdom of God has been victorious. It is at hand. Uh, repent and believe it. So what is Jesus showing us about the kingdom of God through this story, through these incidents? We're going to see some very particular things about the kingdom of God. In addition, we're going to see uh, the depth of our need for Jesus. We're going to see how Jesus gives us faith. We're going to see that we are all just like the woman, and we are all just like the little girl. So let's take a look. Beginning with Jairus' request there, verses 21 to 24. Uh, the story seems to begin normally enough. You know, Mark, uh, like the other gospel writers, has several of these incidents where someone comes and asks Jesus for help, and Jesus' response is, I will come with you. Um, but let's not overlook some important things. Let's not get lost in, in kind of the familiarity of it. And remember that this is a story about a king, about a king showing how his kingdom looks, about a king showing uh, what his authority is, what, what the nature of his authority is. So this is a ruler of the synagogue, Jairus, man of some importance, probably a man of some wealth relative to his neighbors. Um, but the rulers of the synagogue, the rulers of the earth, the people who sort of have what would appear to be authority in the earth uh, are in need of Jesus. They need him. Jairus is a ruler of the synagogue, but he needs Jesus. He needs the real king. The rulers of the world are helpless. The other thing we see here is that as a king... Jesus is very compassionate. People come to him with requests like this, and he says, yes. He says, I will come. And that's even more remarkable. I will come. I mean, in, in your reading of history in your, or movies that you've seen in which there are kings, how many times have you heard of a king responding to a request by saying, I will come? That's not what kings do. You know, if, as we're... Looking at the way the story happens, right? Jesus has gone 
across the sea. He cast out those demons. That whole incident that we talked about last week, he's come back across. Uh, and now he's got all these people gathered around him. It's like he's, if he's the king, he's like he's holding court by the side of the sea. And someone comes with a request. And his response is not, uh, I will send Peter to help you with this. Or I will send James to help you with this. I will come. I will come. What kind of a king does that? What kind of a king says, I will come? And, I, and that is, man, that is a tremendously important feature of Jesus' life and ministry. That he is a king who says, I will come. The whole reason he was born is because sitting in the heavens, he heard the cry of his people saying, tear apart the sky and come down. We are in distress. And he says, I will come. I'm not sending another messenger. I'm not sending another prophet. I will come. Not to get doctrinaire, but this is why the early church was insistent upon the doctrine of the Trinity. Jesus could not be a mere creation of God, even the first creation of God, even the greatest creation of God, and still do what he came to do because he didn't come as a messenger of God. He came as a God who says, I will come. I will come to you. He does not remain aloof. He doesn't remain far off. I will come. And he gets up and he comes. It's like Jesus is reenacting the incarnation itself. Uh, through Jairus coming with this plea and him saying, I will come, and getting up from where he's holding court, getting up from his throne and going into the throng, into the press, into the dirt, where there are unclean people hanging around, who knows where. Okay. But then the story takes the turn, right? We expect... You know, if you're, just, if you're just reading this for the first time or hearing it recounted for the first time, your expectation would be that he arrives, he says, be healed, the girl is healed, and everyone is happy, and then he says, don't tell anybody about it, and then he goes away, and they tell everybody about it. That's what happens every time. But not this time. This time, he is interrupted on the way. A great crowd is following him, verse 24, and they thronged about him. And then the turn, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. Um, the reason I felt it was important for us to re read Leviticus 15 is because I wanted to be really clear what her problem is. Her problem is not principally her health. Uh, she's survived for, it's not like she's bled to death in the last 12 years. Uh, she's mobile, she's able to get up and walk around. Uh, her principal problem is that this condition means that no one can touch her. Let me, the Talmud, <coughs> excuse me, the way that uh, Jewish tradition uh, amplified these commands, and this is, this is really, this is the work of the Pharisees. Um, the Pharisees, as a faction, were motivated by the belief that the Messiah would come when the people of Israel were wholesale 
devoted to the keeping of the law to perfection. Then the Messiah would come and rescue them. So they're not just concerned about their own holiness and purity. They're concerned about everybody else's because the whole community needs to be holy and pure so that the Messiah will come, which is what this is what the Pharisees believe. So the rules and regulations that they uh, enact are, are, it's as if they're saying, like, we got to be extra safe that nobody is messing up. So if it says uh, any bed that she lies upon or any chair that she sits upon, we're going to say anybody who sits in a boat with her is unclean. Anybody who touches a door at the same, opens a door while she's closing it, is unclean. Anybody who twists a rope at the same time as her is unclean. Unless they're pulling in a certain direction, then maybe they can be clean. Anything that she touches that they touch, they become unclean. The Pharisees are so concerned about this that, that these rules and regulations get, uh, get piled up and piled up so that a woman in this condition would effectively be shunned. It's not because they didn't like her. wouldn't even because they thought she had done anything wrong necessarily. But they just wouldn't touch her. They wouldn't have contact with her. There's no mention of a husband here, which leads me to suspect that either she had been divorced because her husband couldn't sleep with her, um, or this had begun about the time that she would have been marrying age. And so she was never able to marry. She's not able to have children, which in, in a society like this would have been devastating. She has no economic hope, no economic future, no social hope, no social future. She's ostracized and alone. So that even when she goes out into the street, she has to sneak around like this. Right, it says that she, uh, she had heard reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. This is why she's being sneaky. Right, like, what, like, why, like, why the secrecy? Why doesn't she do like everybody else does and say, Jesus, when you, can you help me? Uh, she's so afraid of her neighbors. She's so afraid uh, of, the, of the shunning that she's experienced for 12 years, very likely most of her adult life, that she doesn't dare. She's too afraid. She's tried everything. And so she sneaks up. She's heard something about Jesus. And she sneaks up behind him to touch his garment. So what exactly does she believe about Jesus? And I think that the answer has to be not very much. She doesn't know very much about him. She doesn't believe very much about him. This, this idea of like, oh, if I can just get close and get a grab of his clothing, I'll get healed. Uh, it's like she's heard rumors. Um, this is not the first time. Like back in Mark chapter 3, we read uh, that you know, as he's healing people, crowds are pressing around him trying to touch his garments. Uh, so she's not the first person to try this. And it's kind of like she's, she doesn't know much about him or what he's about, but she's like, this is worth a try. I've tried everything. This is worth a try. And so she tries it. She sneaks up, and she touches him. And immediately, the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body, she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. 
It's like, it worked. I can't believe it. She's shocked. It worked. And so she does the natural thing when she has seen the power of Jesus. She says, hallelujah, everybody, he just... Actually, no. She's still hanging back. She's still afraid. <coughs> Which means that even at this moment, she still doesn't know, she still doesn't get it. She still doesn't see who he is. But immediately the flow of blood dried up. She felt in her body that she was healed. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? Um, his perception that power had gone out from him. Uh, you know, again, we don't want to read this as, as, as magic. He's not a talisman. Okay, the power that went out from him is the power of God. And the power of God is always under God's sovereign control. She didn't steal something. She was acting like a pickpocket. But she didn't steal anything. What she got, God gave to her by his sovereign will. The man Jesus Christ seems, you know, we, it's, it's awesome when we can see his humanity and his divinity uh, kind of operating together. The man Jesus seems to not know who it was. But God knows. The power that has gone out from him. So he says, who touched me? He says, who touched my garments? And his disciples, right, they're not just being snarky. Uh, they are being a little snarky. But they're not just being snarky. Right, they are, they, what are they concerned? Who touched me? We have, there is a dying little girl that we are trying to get to. They're, we're trying to get through this crowd to, across town so we can save this girl's life, and you're worried about who's touching your clothes in this press, in this crowd. But he looked around to see who had done it. And we learned something else about the kingdom of God right here, that the priorities of God's kingdom are not like our priorities. Right? God's sovereign will and God's sovereign knowledge uh, means that sometimes we are going to be surprised by his choices. It means that sometimes bad things are going to happen like it's about to happen here as a result of something that we think God could have done this differently. But he knows what he's doing. And Jesus is immediately concerned with this person who has just shown this, this sort of weak, infantile faith, and he needs to help her. He's not going to leave her alone, sneaking in and cowering in the crowd. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Right? The whole truth would include, I believed that if I touched your clothes, uh, I would be healed. And he said to her, daughter, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Go in peace. That's a, I mean, that is a common greeting or a common benediction where you would say goodbye to someone. Go in peace uh, in that day. But from the lips of Jesus, in response to her faith, is a message of salvation. Go in peace. In peace for your life. and be healed of your disease. She 
She touches him, it works, and he gives her peace. Now, the uh, really striking thing about this is that she's an unclean person who touches his garments. So you just read the passage. What happens to his garments when she touches them? What happens to him? He has, she has just made Jesus unclean with her touch. But that is not how it works with Jesus. <laughs> with Jesus, it works backward. Instead of her uh, uncleanness passing to him and, as it were, infecting him and making him unclean, his holiness and purity flow into her and make her holy and clean. Power goes out from him. Rather than uncleanness going out from her, power goes out from him. And he names her daughter, tells her that her faith has made her well. She can go in peace and be healed. Okay. And then we move to the final act of the story. He finally arrives. While he was still speaking, in verse 35, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? The thing that the disciples were fearful of happened. You can just imagine them having this, I told you so. Why are you bothering with this woman when there was a life at stake? Why bother the teacher anymore? She's dead. Your daughter is dead. Man, I can't imagine how crushing those words would feel to that man. I, can, I have daughters, and I can barely imagine what a blow that would feel. But overhearing what they said, Jesus says to him, do not fear, only believe. He allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James, John, the brother of James. And they came into the house and the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion of people weeping and wailing loudly. Sort of the opposite of this woman. Um, right? She's being sneaky about her uncleanness. These people are being loud about their holy behavior. Um, they're, they're, they are uh, following the laws of cleanness. Uh, they used to pay mourners to do this so that they would be sure that they were following all of the rituals correctly. And so they're being very flamboyant and loud about their following of the, of the ritual purity laws. Jesus says to stop, right? Why are you making a commotion weeping? The child's not dead but sleeping. And they you can tell that they're, that they're kind of mercenaries because their weeping is immediately turned to laughter when he says that. But all of them, uh, he put all of them outside, took the child's father and mother, those who were with him, and he went in where the child was. Again, this king, right? This is, this is a king who says, I will come. Um, there are other passages we could have read from Leviticus about uh, how uh, coming in contact with a dead body would also make you unclean. But Jesus takes her by the hand. Says, and I love it. I love it when there are these passages where uh, they know, they, they, they say it in Jesus' own language because people were, were close enough to have heard it. 
and report ex his exact words. Talitha Kumi, little girl, get up. Little girl, arise. Talitha would have been not just the, you know, what you would call a little girl, but it was like a term of endearment. It was like, sweetheart, honey, it's time to get up. And I love the way Sally Lloyd-Jones puts this in uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible. It says he reached down into death and brought her back to life. The infection of impurity can't pass to him. The infection of death can't pass to him. But he reaches into death and pulls her back. Her spirit returned to her. And immediately the little girl got up and began walking. The reversal. Death is infectious. Death spreads. But Jesus' life spreads more. Jesus' life is more powerful than death. His power over death to reach into death itself and pull this little girl back to life. And she immediately got up and began walking around. Through all of this, we're learning uh, something very, very important about faith. Uh, about faith and about fear. Right? He says to the Father, Jesus very directly contrasts these two things. Do not fear, only believe. And in Greek and Hebrew alike, believe and faith are the same word. Do not fear, only have faith. Do not fear, only have faith. So when Jesus says that, if you've been paying attention, you might notice that this has been a theme throughout the last several stories. Like we go back, uh, chapter 4. Right After he calms the storm, they're afraid of the storm. You remember this. They're afraid of the storm. Master, don't you care that we're going to perish? They wake him up. Uh, he calms the storm, and then they're not af afraid anymore? No. They're more afraid. Right? He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? It's his own disciples in this moment are more afraid of Jesus than they were of the storm that was threatening their lives. In uh, chapter 5, which we also read last week, uh, when Jesus heals this demon-possessed man in this uh, Gentile city, they come and they see the one who had the legion sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. They're more afraid seeing the man having been healed than they were of him when he was filled with a thousand demons. They're more afraid of Jesus than they were of the thousands of demons infecting this man. The power that they are encountering is terrifying. And Jesus, in, uh, at the end of Mark 4, at the end of the, the calming of the storm, he contrasts fear and faith. Why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? And now here, do not fear, only have faith. And so in verse 33, the woman came 
Knowing what had happened to her, she came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And then he says to her, your faith has made you whole. So what are we uh, learning about faith here? Right? One, that it's the opposite of fear. Right? That Jesus is scarier in the power that he seems to have is scarier than all of the things that people want him to save them from. He is more, the fact that he is able to in an instant calm a storm is scarier than the storm. The fact that he is able to drive demons into pigs and then into the pit of hell going down into the water is scarier than the demons were. The fact that he has in an instant taken this disease out of her body is scarier to her than the disease was. But the antidote to that is faith. And how do you go from one to the other? Right, the scriptures tell us over and over that faith is the answer to all our problems. Faith is how we uh, acquire God's favor. Faith in Jesus is how we know that God has forgiven our sins and receive it. Faith in Jesus is how we are sanctified by the Holy Spirit and made holy in our lives. Faith in Jesus is how we will be raised from the dead when he returns. Faith is the answer. How do we go from being terrified Terrified of our sins, and even more terrified of the holy God who has the power over them. To being full of faith and having no fear. Right, this woman has demonstrated two acts of faith, and this is key. This is key to how help us understand this. The woman did not just demonstrate an act of faith by reaching out and touching him. She demonstrated two acts of faith. The first act of faith uh, was immature at best. It was ignorant of really who he was and what he was like. You know, like if she had known anything about him, she would have come to him face to face. Uh, if she had known anything about him, she wouldn't have had to sneak up behind him and try to use him like a magic talisman that maybe I could touch him and I can get healed. Uh, and even after she's healed, she still has this. She's still cowering in the crowd. He has to look around. So even knowing that she has been healed has not changed her status of having faith or no faith. She still is not very strong faith, still full of fear. What changed? Well, what changed when the little girl was lying dead? Not even able to sneak around. Not even able to try to pick his pocket and get some of his power to get well. Not able to do anything at all. She's dead. And what changed? He spoke to her. He said to her, get up. And when Jesus tells you to get up, you get up. When Jesus says, who touched me? You reveal yourself. Jesus' voice, Jesus' word, Jesus speaking to you and calling you to himself and you hear it is what creates faith in your heart. I've used the analogy before, but maybe some of you weren't here. If you're a Doctor Who fan, you know, Doctor Who always has these companions. It's a science fiction TV show. He's this really powerful time traveler. He always has a companion that travels with him. And 
the companions are often like, they, they start to follow him without really knowing anything about him. But they just see him and he's like, you want to go on a trip? You want to see the future? You want to see the past? And they're like, I'm with you. Right? That's what happens to people when they encounter Jesus. I don't, I, I don't, I barely know anything about you, but I can see that you are who you say you are and I am with you. And the voice of Jesus calling you is what changes you from fearful to faithful. Is what changes us from dead to alive. Right? Most of us, we're actually a lot like this woman. Right? We are ashamed of our sin. We don't want to even bother asking God for, for, for help if we can avoid it. We would rather pick God's pocket. We want to maximize our benefit from God while minimizing our exposure to him and the cost to ourselves. How many good deeds do I have to do so that God will answer my prayer? How little can I get away with fasting in order to get God's attention? How few times do I have to come to church each month uh, in order to call myself a decent Christian? What can I get away with? How little exposure can I give myself to God? How little do I have to pray? We want to hide from him. We fear the light of his piercing gaze. But that second act of faith that the woman has is when he calls her forward and she obeys. And that is when he says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace, daughter. Jesus spoke to her. Jesus called her. And in spite of herself, she comes forward. We're also just like this little girl. We're so wrapped up in our own self-righteousness, so helpless in our self-reliance, in our sin, in our self-interest. We can't shake them off. Because even even if we're trying to get to God in order that he can do something for us, it's still selfish. We're still self-interested. We can't stop. Man, Ben Franklin, uh, in his autobiography, talks about how he kept a diary at at some point of his virtues um, and how he would make progress in them. And this one that he said he could never make progress in was the virtue of humility. I love that honesty in Franklin. He can't make progress. You, you cannot. You cannot make progress in the virtue of humility. Right? We chase our own tails trying to make ourselves better. But the most dangerous sins are the ones we can shake the least. You might think that your, that your lust for alcohol or sex or food is your biggest problem. I'll tell you what. If you're having trouble kicking that, you don't even know what your biggest problems are. Your biggest problems are the way that you relate to your spouse, the way that you're posturing, trying to put yourself in the right above other people in ways you're not even aware of. Later, the Bible tells us that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. This is Ephesians 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course 
of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And then it goes on and says, but God has made us alive together with Christ. That is what we need. We are like this little girl lying so helpless we can't even ask her help. And Jesus can reach down into death and pull us back to himself, pull us to life. And he does that by giving us faith. And how do you get the faith? By hearing his voice and hearing his call. When we do hear Jesus' call, obedience follows. It always follows. Sometimes obedience seems easy, like the little girl. She just gets up. Sometimes obedience seems hard, like that woman. She comes with fear and trembling. Sometimes when we're struggling with sin, even as Christians, we're going to have to be begging God for help with fear and trembling. I know this is what you want me to do. I know what the right thing is, but I'm so afraid. I feel so weak. I feel so helpless. God, you got to help me. Sometimes you're going to persist in that for what seems like forever, and then you're going to fall to the sin, and you're going to think, I blew it. But Jesus reaches down into death to pull us back to himself, to pull us back to life. So you want, to, you want faith. You know you need to hear Jesus' call. All right, and now your sense of frustration is only growing. How do I get to hear Jesus' call then? All right, I have good news. I can tell you the answer to that question. All right, here's one answer. Open his mouth. And you can hear him talk. All right, all right, Patrick's shaking his head at me. There. Okay. So on one hand, only he can control when you hear him. But I can promise you that if you want to hear him, if you're sitting here thinking, how do I get to hear Jesus? I want to hear him. I can promise you that you probably already have. He's probably already speaking to you. You're probably here this morning because he is already calling to you. He's already forming faith within you, and that's why you're here. You've been that obedient. You've got that much faith. Maybe you're just still like that woman, and I just, I get if I get close, maybe I'll get something. But the good news is that he also gives us promises of exactly how he comes to us, exactly how we can expect to hear his voice. And it is through the scriptures. It is through reading them, but more especially it's through hearing them preached. So here you are. Jesus is calling to you. Through baptism. Uh, in, in Ephesians 5, it says that Jesus washes the church with water by the word, so that the power of baptism isn't in the molecules of the water, but it is in the power of the word of God that through that baptism he is preaching to your body that you are clean, and you can hear his voice in it. That, by the way, is one of the reasons that I was moved uh, toward the doctrine of infant, infant baptism, because a child that young, obviously, they can't understand uh, the intellectual words, but God's word is sure, and that promise is being made to them through that water. The voice of God is being declared to them through that water. 
We also hear him through the Lord's Supper, which we're going to eat in a few minutes. And before we eat it, we always repeat some of the most sacred and powerful words that Jesus ever spoke. Jesus, through that supper, speaks to us. He speaks of his death to us. It says that as often as we eat the bread and drink the wine, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Eating and drinking this meal proclaims the Lord's death to your fingers, to your hand, to your lips, to your teeth, to your tongue, to your throat, to your stomach, to your whole body. The message of Christ's death for you is proclaimed to you. You can hear the voice of Jesus as you encounter this meal. And then keep coming back for more because faith can build slowly. That's why I have to come to church every week because I need to be fed through his word and through that sacrament every week. I need to hear him again and again and again and again calling to me. Get up, get up, get up. Get up. And this final detail of the story, <laughs> you almost miss it. After she gets up, she's walking. He told them to give her something to eat. On the one hand, it's just a simple and beautiful detail. Right? He cares for her. He's concerned about her. But in it, Jesus is underscoring a very obvious but very critical truth. Life needs nourishment. Life needs food. In truth, the woman's uncleanness is passed to Jesus. The little girl's death is passed to Jesus. He gives the woman holiness and purity. He gives the girl life. But he does it by, he feels power go out from him. It costs him something. It costs him taking on her impurity. It costs him taking on this girl's death in his own body. And through his death on that cross, he offers himself to us for the life of the world to nourish us for eternal life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, give us grace to see ourselves in these two women, to see ourselves in our helplessness and our deep need for you, to see ourselves in our desperation and our shame, to see ourselves in our helplessness. Oh God, grant us grace to hear the voice of Jesus calling us, calling us out of our shame into holiness, calling us out of our death into his life. Lord God, through Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, grant us faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and continue by singing.